Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm Ryan Meeks, and after years of trying to make life work as a struggling artist, independent filmmaker, and musician, I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be helpful to ask other artists how they're finding their path in this world? And so now, that's exactly what I'm doing on a bi-weekly basis. Welcome to the Path of Art. Welcome to the Path of Art. I'm your host, Ryan Meeks. Today on the Path of Art, we have... Paul Cartwright. So Paul Cartwright lives in Utah, and he's a voice actor, actor. What else about you, Paul Cartwright? <laughs> yeah, producer, director, improv, comedy, Just all of the above. All around, having fun, doing the creative thing. Well, that's what we're kind of all about here. So um, let's talk about some of the acting and voice acting that you've done recently. Um, now I looked on your IMDb page. There's there's a few uh, cartoons. Yeah, and uh, there was also a video game. Yeah, there's 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 probably around four, seven or eight video games at this point. Um, major titles: Genshin Impact, uh, Shadowverse, Smite, um, some of the bigger ones, um, Street Outlaws, uh, some other ones that are in development right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, animation and video games is primarily where I book my work and then, uh, commercial stuff is, you know, that's kind of what pays the bills, but the animation video game stuff, that's, that's where I I book a lot. So what would, what would you say has been your, so far your favorite video game to voice act on and, and well, and what voices have you done on those video games? Yeah. So the hardest thing about favorites is that every job is totally different. Right. And so it makes it hard to pick a favorite because they're all so fun. Right. Um, I, uh, I'm just trying to think about which ones I can talk about. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, the NDAs. The stuff, NDAs. Right? Yeah. I gotta be, gotta be careful. Um, one thing I did love about, um, so for instance, the street outlaw series, I mm-hmm. was actually voice matching, um, real people. And so oh. that's really fun because... So what is voice matching? Yeah. So voice matching is there's a video game coming out and the real people are... are They charge a lot of money. <laughs> and so right. the production team says, look, let's save some money by finding a voice match. Someone who mm-hmm. sounds close enough to or exactly like the mm-hmm. people in the game so that we can you know, afford to put their voices in. So I voice matched with two different people in the game 
And so they had me record the lines as those people, which uh, ended up being really fun because, you know, voice matching is its own unique skill set because you have to understand the cadence and the intonation and how they talk. And so there's a bit of research that has to be done there. Too. I would I would say there's quite a bit of research. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to, like you said, listen to how they say everything. Yeah. And I'm a natural mimic, so it's a little easier for me. But, okay. I mean, I'm watching interviews. I'm watching footage mm-hmm. and just trying to internalize how all of that, how they sound mm-hmm. and, and, and all their little, uh, you know, nuances to their speech. And so voice matching has been really fun. I, I've had voice match auditions and bookings for uh, Sam Elliott, oh, wow. for uh, Jack Black, Paul Rudd, uh, uh, um, Zach Galifianakis. And um, it's oftentimes just a, a quick turnaround, especially in this industry, where you know I'll get an I'll get an audition at six p.m. Mm-hmm. that says, "Hey, we need to turn around tonight because we need to record this first thing in the morning." And so a lot of that's uh, trailer work or promo work, mm-hmm. but it's always fun to try and voice match people. Uh, does it ever feel like um, like you're doing an impression of that person at all? Yeah. It- and that's what I try to stay away from only because, especially in voice matching, you want mm. authenticity. Right. Whereas in impressionism. You don't, you don't want a caricature. Yeah. Right? Which, and that's the thing is because I've had both. I've had mm. auditions that say, hey, we want an impression of or we want a parody of so and so, which is totally different from voice match because in voice match, you want the audience to think that it's that person speaking. Mm-hmm. So there is a difference. And um, I have done parodies, <laughs> which are still fun because there's a little less stress to match the voice. Right. And more of like an impersonation or a parody or a caricature of that person. It's kind of more of an improv version of, yeah. not not improv, but, you know, just more of that fun yeah. version of it. Right. Yeah. There's not as much pressure to get it exactly how the person sounds. Mm-hmm. So you did mention improv and directing. Uh, tell me some about uh, about those things that you do. Yeah. So leading up to um, my master's in fine arts that I got um, out in England at the Royal Conservatory, um, I did 20 plus years of onstage, uh, on-camera acting. Um, a lot of my onstage stuff was at the, the Hale Center Theater, which is a local theater here in Salt Lake City. Uh, but also um, a lot of improv where it was uh, one of my favorites was a yearly production called Witchapalooza that was done at Gardner Village here in Utah, where um, we basically created a musical theater improv comedy where we had some songs that we were singing that we knew and there was a loose script. But basically every night was a totally different show. We'd just go mm-hmm. in there and, and, and improv and have fun and. And so uh, a lot of years doing that, some years where um, I started uh, producing audio. So I would produce uh, audio stories and uh, and other types of what most people would call audio dramas. Mm-hmm. Um, we call them movies for your mind. Right. Where they're fully produced cinematic score, you know, a 30 minute to 50 minute episodes that so, are so, audio. So do you write and direct those? Yeah, I write and direct and produce. Okay. And so, so that's, I mean, that's quite a bit of time that you put in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of time going into that. So speaking of how much time you got to put into things, um, we had talked earlier and you said something about your commute. You, you commute between Lehigh and LA. 
So before the pandemic, we lived in L.A. Mm-hmm. and we're doing the whole L.A. scene with on-camera acting and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we ended up buying a house in Lehigh. And for the first little while with the pandemic, there was a commute where whether it was a booking or it was a meeting with a client, whatever it was, I would be flying or driving to L.A. Uh, a few times a month. Mm-hmm. And it it wasn't terrible only in the sense that the bookings that I was recording were more than paying for the flight. And so I wasn't it wasn't a problem for me to get an email saying, hey, we need you in the studio tomorrow. And then I just book a flight or I literally just hop in the car and drive through the night to L.A. Right. Um, and so there was, yeah, there was a while. And then the pandemic really changed everything. I mean, it just, it got to the point where all my voice work, well, I, I can't say all, I'd say probably 99% of my voice work is all remote. Mm-hmm. So now I can record everything from home. I built a studio in my house. Everything's set and squared away there. Um, and so I've only been to L.A. once in the past 14 months because of the pandemic. Oh, so wow. it's changed the whole landscape of voiceover work. So do you have any plans to move back there or are you or do you like your setup how it is now? I mean, I loved L.A. while I was there. And I think that eventually if uh, I mean, the reality is, is if I, you know, if I book like a recurring lead role in an animated series, you're recording two, three times a week for months. Yeah. So you're going to need to stay there. For yeah. A little bit. And so the the idea of, of commuting that often is just not feasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. If I can keep my current setup, it's nice for my family, which I think is really what I want is just, you know, that the ideal setup for my family. Um, but I would like to move back eventually. I, I think mm-hmm. I think it's in the cards. Yeah, I've always been curious about, um, you know, creative people that are able to do what they're doing as a career and that decide to stay in Utah. And uh, so would that... What would be something that would be your determining factor either to move there or to stay here? Would it be that big job or is there something uh, or is there something that you you would like to stay here for? Yeah, that's a great question. I my wife and I talk a lot about, you know, what would it take for us mm-hmm. to move back? And um, I don't think we've decided completely yet what that thing would be. Mm hmm. But I know that a lot of what we want is um, because I was raised here and my wife lived here for a lot of her life. We we want to explore. We want to get out. And we only spent a couple years in L.A. while we were there before the pandemic. And so uh, I feel like there's some unfinished business there. And I know my wife feels like she would love to get out of Utah especially with our with raising our kids give them different cultural you know opportunities and different mm-hmm. opportunities outside of what we're what we're typically used to so i don't know what the determining factor will be mm-hmm. but i think if a major role comes along whether it's on camera or voiceover i think that would be a big factor about whether or not we right. pull the trigger so let's talk about uh some of some of the acting. I know that you've done, you know, on-camera acting and uh, stage acting as well. Uh, what productions have you been in most recently? Yeah, so... Uh, uh, that you can talk about. Yeah, that I can talk about, <laughs> and that's that's a big thing. Um, so right now, um, I'm shooting a few films coming up at the end of the summer uh, that I can't talk about. <laughs> uh, but that's why, you know, if anyone looks at the footage, I've got a 
big old scruffy beard and long hair and I look like I, you know, haven't combed myself in years. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I typically don't grow a beard, which is funny. Um, so what I can talk about is um, I just finished um, a – oh, I can't talk about that one either yet. Never mind. <laughs> um so voiceover work I can talk about because a lot of the stuff that when it comes out okay. then I'm then I'm in the clear. But but you are you are venturing more into on camera acting. Yeah, right? I am I am so initially so I am full-time voice work and that's how I pay a living. Right. I love on camera. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of one of my passions. And right. so I've started venturing back into to on camera work. I've done a few commercials for different products around around here. Um I've done um I love stage on stage stuff, mm-hmm. I just haven't pulled the trigger because it's it's a commitment, right? For very little pay, yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, obviously, it's not about the money, but the reality is, is right now my kids are at the ages where I don't want to be away from them every mm-hmm. night for three months trying right. to put on a show. So it makes it harder to do an on stage production. Yes. Um. So on camera work, I'm I'm doing short films. I'm doing commercials. And then working towards features and, and again, you know, can't talk about the feature I am doing, but I am getting back into on camera Mm -hmm. and I'm loving it and I'm having an absolute blast. And I think um, within the next six months, there's definitely going to be more that I can talk about, uh, but it's going to take six or seven months. So is it hard to bounce between those two worlds, the voice acting and the on camera acting? So when I started voice acting, I had had my, you know, 20 plus years of on camera on stage and I thought it was going to be a pretty seamless transition. Uh, but there is a massive, and this might just be me, but there is a massive learning curve getting behind the microphone because anything on camera, you have your face and your body to help tell the story. But once you get behind a microphone, the only thing the audience is getting is your voice. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put every, gesture, every sentiment, every emotion, all of that has to come out of your voice. Mm -hmm. And so I had probably a a 10 to 12 month on ramp of trying to make the transition into voice acting because it is a whole different ballgame. It's not the same as being on camera. And, and, you know, like I said, there may be a few people out there who know it was a seamless transition, but for me, no, it it was, it's a whole different ballgame. Have you found that it enhances your, um, uh, your on-camera uh, acting at all? Yeah, for me, the voice acting has only improved and and uh, uh, increased my abilities on camera. Being a stage actor for so long, like stage to film has been one of my hardest transitions. But having gotten into voiceover and now getting back into film my transition to film is actually a lot easier now because of my voiceover, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting because I, you know, a lot of people talk about their stage to film transition was relatively easy. Mine was difficult because I'm a very expressive person. And for right. a lot of times on film, they want you to bring it down. Right. And I couldn't understand that concept until I started doing voiceover 
and learned how the microphone picks up everything. It picks up all the nuances, all the detail. And once I understood that concept of the microphone picking up nuance and detail. Then you kind of dialed back the facial expressions and the movement, right? I learned the camera picks up all that. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a click moment for me where I was right. like, oh, gotcha. I understand that. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll be right back. We're talking with Paul Cartwright, a voice actor and film actor. And we'll be back here on The Path of Art. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said... You need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to The Path of Art. We're here with Paul Cartwright, a voice and film actor. But I want to know, Paul, what got you started in acting? What got you interested in it in the first place? Yeah, my acting beginning is the craziest story uh, that even I still don't understand to this day. So um, in in high school, I was a, a, a football player and a basketball player. I, I was a sports guy. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, what was really interesting is, is going through junior high, uh, which is just the worst time ever. Junior high is... is I don't think anyone ever enjoys junior high. Junior high is the worst. And you're trying to make friends and you're trying to fit in and you're trying to figure out what your niche is or where you belong or where your tribe is, you know, and I didn't really know any of those things. I I was I played golf in junior high and tried to play sports. Well, getting into high school, I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to follow the sports route. My dad was a big sports guy. My brother played on the football team. And so I was like, yeah, let's go the sports route. And um, I remember the day that... Um, they were having the meeting for football for the football team. There was a you basically went to an after school meeting to meet with the coach and then you'd sign up and, mm-hmm. and do the whole football thing. And as I was on my way to the room for the meeting, I looked up and saw a banner that had auditions for the school musical. And I I don't remember what happened. I, I don't remember how I got there, but I didn't end up going to the meeting. I ended up going to the auditions for the school musical. And, uh, and that was it. I never went back. I I, I just ended up there and I was like, huh, this seems interesting. And I auditioned for the school musical and then I did theater through high school and, and, uh, went on after high school to, uh, perform professionally and, what was interesting, too, is the number of people who said, you know, hey, the arts, you know, they're not a it's not a sustainable income. Like, don't don't get into the arts. You can't make a living doing it. And and I actually listened to those people when I went to college. And when I went up to the University of Utah to get my undergrad, I said, well, I'm not going to do theater because there's no money in it. And mm-hmm. so I got my 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 bachelor's in strategic communication, PR and speech writing. 
thinking, well, maybe there's some creative things that I can put into that where I can make a living. Well, what's funny is I was performing professionally all through college and paid for my college as an actor. Hmm. And it wasn't until I graduated that I went, wait a second. I just paid for my entire education as a full-time actor. Like what? What are these people talking about who said you can't make a living in the performing arts? So how did how did that happen? Like where were you performing? Like what like what kind of gigs did you ha- did you have? Yeah, so I was doing a lot of performing at Hale Center Theater mm-hmm. and uh, on camera stuff through a local agent, where I was just you know here and there, left and right. But the thing is, is you know going to school and and living away from home, I didn't have a lot of bills. Like right. it wasn't a lot of money, and so I could pay for all of that doing acting. Because I didn't have a lot of expenses. Um, But it was just this strange thing where I I, I suddenly realized that all of the people who were telling me you can't make a living in the arts were people who weren't in the arts. Mm. And I was and when that dawned on me, I, I, I suddenly realized like, well, what do they know? Like they're not in the arts. And when I started talking to my friends in the arts who were making a living, they were all like, oh, yeah, you can't listen to the people who aren't doing it. Because they don't know. And that was when everything changed. And that was when I said, all right, well, then we're doing this. Yeah. One of the things I always listened to, which affected me greatly, uh, was that, you know, it's the chances of you making it successfully are slim to none. So you might as well focus on something that can sustain you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that was the that was the consistent over and over again talk was, no, 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 you can't make it. It's so hard to make it. Well, let's define make it, right? right. And what what I was getting was the group of people saying, well, yeah, you know, you, to make it meant, meant you were a Hollywood star. Well, I don't want to be a Hollywood star. Like, that's not making it for me. Making just it. just want to make a living yeah, doing what I enjoy, right? Exactly. And, and it turns out I absolutely could make it mm-hmm. for myself where I'm now a full-time actor And I'm loving every second of it. And I'm financially more well off than I've ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a blast. I love every day. Waking up is not a chore. I love waking up. I love working. Oftentimes my wife will be like, hey, it's been an 18 hour day. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like, no, you're right. Yeah. Let me let me come back to the family, you know, Mm -hmm. because I get lost in it. Whereas before, you know, during that transition where everyone was saying, you know, don't do it, don't do it. I was doing nine to five sales jobs that I hated. And this isn't anything against sales. There's people who Mm -hmm. love sales. But for me. I was not a fan, Mm -hmm. but I had a little, you know, I was a charismatic kind of guy. And so for me, sales was easier Mm -hmm. to just do to pay to to pay the bills. And I, I dreaded waking up. I dreaded going to work and that's all different now. Whole thing has changed. Right. Yeah. I, I remember having this weird, this weird realization when I was young, like in high school that most people go to a nine to five job, Right. And the the whole, you know, what we've just talked about, how people saying you, you, to make it, quote unquote, make it, I mean, you, it's slim to, the chances are slim to none. And I just remember just dreading even graduating high school because then I'd have to go to this job at an office where I just knew it wasn't for me. I could feel yeah. that that wasn't for me. Uh, agreed. And, and that's exactly how I was. I mean, my mom knew from mm-hmm. when I was like 12 that I was not a nine to fiver. I was not going to follow the path that everyone else followed. I just, that was not what was in the cards for me. 
And so when I struggled through the first four or five years of my marriage working jobs that I absolutely hated, I mean, there was a moment where my wife and I sat down and we were just like, yeah, this isn't what we want. Mm -hmm. And we need to go for this. We need to really pursue this. And, and, the, and the reason is it wasn't like I was, you know, working these jobs and then decided, oh, I'm going to quit this and get into the show business. Mm-hmm. I'd had success. I'd had experiences before that had let me know, no, you do have some ability in this area and you have seen some successes. So it's not like I was taking a blind leap into show business. Like I'd, I'd had enough experience to know, no, like if I went at this and if I worked hard, I could make a sustainable living mm-hmm. and and. And so, yeah, that that was kind of the the tipping point of I'm done with the nine to five. This is not my lifestyle. I know I don't want this. I need to pursue what I really want. And it's paid unbelievable dividends. And so were were you married at the time when you were going to college and acting? So you're you had a family back then as well? No. So this is why I could sustain myself is I was single all through college. And so for me, I mean, I was living in my friend's basement for like 250 a month, you know, and and, and I had no expenses. Mm -hmm. And so apart from school, you know, and so once I graduated, then I got married and then it was, you know, you got to provide for a family. You got to take care of your family. And so that's when I got really hit with, you know, well, if you're providing for a family, you you need a big boy job. Mm -hmm. You need to go do a real job that's going to pay. And so I, I fell in that trap for four or five years. Right. Some of some of us are still in that trap. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong yeah. with that. I'm saying for me, right. it was not the path. That was not right. where I was going. But there are a lot of creative people that are just kind of stuck in that. So. Oh, yeah. there's a, I have friends, dear friends, who are still trying to figure out how to utilize their creativity in a way that they love to work. Mm-hmm. And and it's an individual choice and everyone's got to go through it on their own way. But I, I learned pretty quickly when I made the choice, this is all or nothing. There's no plan B. Like there's no backup plan. I'm going for this and and it's I'm, I have to make it happen because there's nothing to fall back on. That is inspiring, my friend. Well, I, anything I can do to help because for me it's been it's, <laughs> it's been a crazy inspiring. journey. <laughs> wow. Um was there any point in time where you thought it wasn't going to work or did you just hit it full steam ahead and it kind of just started to work out for you? Uh, every day, I wonder whether it's going to work out. But just in just in little pieces, I mean, there was absolutely in the first, I mean, when I approached my wife and said, hey, I, want, I need to go full-time voiceover, there was obviously a long discussion that took place mm-hmm. because that's that's a big deal. Now, I was working a full-time sales position remotely at the, when I started getting into voiceover and started making money in voiceover. And there was there was essentially a crossover period where I think every artist has to meet that point where they say, okay, when am I going to stop double dipping and just transition full-time into what I want? Mm-hmm. Because I was making, you know, a full-time salary providing for my family. But then all of a sudden, my voiceover income kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And I had to make the decision, when do I, when do I pull the trigger? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my job that I was working for at the time, I think they were fully aware that I was not 
as invested as I could have been. Mm-hmm. They were dear friends. I, I jumped on board when they were still a startup. They've exploded since, and I, I, I love everyone there. Like I still love all the people I worked with there. Mm-hmm. But they realized this that was not my passion. Mm-hmm. And so um, eventually they made it easy for me because they said, look, we're going to let you go. We understand your heart's not here. Like, be free. And that was – so for me it was easy. It was an easy push-off point because they mm-hmm. said – you're no longer working for us anymore. And so I said, great. Well, this is now the step. What I'm going full do. time. Like there's, I, ah, here we go. Game on. And there's a certain sense of drive and motivation and fear and anxiety mm-hmm. that comes when right. you don't have a choice, mm-hmm. when you, when you have made a decision where there's no plan B that is good for you, mm-hmm. that motivates you, that pushes you toward this is the only option. Mm-hmm. So we have to make this work. And that is what got me, I think, where I'm at now is because there was no sense of, well, I hope this works out. But if not, you know, I, I could probably do something else. It was this has to work out. I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what attributed to a lot of my early successes in voiceover and a lot of the success I'm finding now in on camera and and uh, in voiceovers because – there was no plan B. So how do you deal with that day-to-day fear and anxiety? Because, I mean, I know I've experienced it. There was a point in my life, too, where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go and do this film thing. So I started my own business, I jumped, added in photography, all this other stuff, got really good at it, but the fear would almost cripple me on a daily basis. And on top of that... I didn't have as much focus as you had because I was like, yeah, I want to be a filmmaker, but you know, I still, I mean, I've been a musician most of my life. Right. So I've got that in the back of my head and then the photography crept in and I really liked doing photography. So then I had all these things that I couldn't just gain focus. So there was these two things that were probably my downfall in that area, but how do you deal with both the fear and anxiety, but also keeping that focus? I think one of the most important things to deal with when it comes to fear is recognizing how to channel it into something else. And fear is often just a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge of of what's coming. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're work you're you're thinking to yourself, you know, oh, fear, I'm I don't know what's coming, so that that makes me scared. Well, the reality is is if you can if you can channel your fear into optimistic uh, uh, excitement, it changes everything because once you start thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? And you shift that into, okay, so what are some ways that I can bring in new income this month? It's all a mindset. It's Mm -hmm. all mental because every day I wake up and there's at least one instance during the day where I go, Oh man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make enough money this month. Mm -hmm. And I just train myself instantly to say, no, like don't think that way. Think what are some new ways I can bring in revenue? When you say that you figure out a new way to add income, do you try to make sure it's still within that focus or do you ever step outside and do something else? So when I found voiceover, I did not anticipate finding voiceover. I had anticipated when I moved to L.A., I was going to be a full-time on-camera TV film actor. Like, that was going to be what happened. And then when voiceover came along, I recognized, 
here's an opportunity to use the creativity that I have in a new way that could possibly generate more income for my family. And since that time, I have been open to all different types of ways of, of, of producing income. I, I have produced um, advertising for companies, for clients. I've, I've recorded and produced audio spots for commercials for companies. I have produced audio dramas. I have uh, uh, filmed short films for, uh, uh, for myself to try and get into film circuits. Like I, I've recognized that if I just pigeonhole myself into, well, I'm an on-camera actor and that's the only way I'm going to make money. Well, the reality is, is there's a certain level you have to achieve before that can really become a reality leading up to that point. Why not open your horizons and expand your view and just do anything creative that could possibly generate revenue Mm-hmm. One of the greatest secrets I learned is that the people who are at the top are just as knowledgeable and versed in most areas as you are. They've just found a way to harness their creativity and export it as a product that people are buying. Mm-hmm. Now, true, there's outliers who are just geniuses and brilliant and know all these wonderful things, and that's why they're leaders in their field. But the reality is, is the majority of people who are trying to make it are in the same place as you are. So we start putting imposter syndrome on ourselves and saying, well, I, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, guess what? No one else does either. Like we're all just trying to figure this thing out. And so why not you, why not take a shot? Why not create something and say, huh, let's see where this goes. Because the reality is, is anyone who says, well, that's garbage. Well, anyone who says that's garbage to art there, they have no idea what they're talking about. Or what art is. Exactly. Art is the most subjective field there is. And so who's to say what's good and what's bad, Mm -hmm. right? You look at all the people who have created unbelievable, quote, art, unquote, right? Mm -hmm. And it was them saying, well, I had this idea and I went with it. Right. Every idea is an opportunity. And so once you start telling yourself, well, maybe it's not good or maybe it doesn't fit or maybe it's not right. Who are you to say? If you have an idea and you want to create it, go create it. See what happens. Like, don't don't let yourself or other people talk you down. This is a subjective field. Wow. So what I mean, what was what was the first thing that that you like the first job that you got that you were like, this is this is taking me there. Yeah, I. So when I was living in L.A. and found voiceover, Mm -hmm. I had a dear friend. She's an absolute rock star. She's a full-time voice actress as well. She was like, hey, have you thought about voiceover? And I was like, no. She's like, well, come with me. And we went to this conference that was hosted by uh, Randy Thomas. She's the voice of the Oscars. You know, ladies and gentlemen, Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, she's the voice (laughs) of God who who narrates the, the Oscars. Big deal. So I go to this conference, and I'm learning that people do this for a living, Right. Like stuff that people see and hear sometimes you don't realize they're getting paid for that. Totally. And I was like, wait, what? This is a world? So I started meeting people. I started connecting with people. I started finding out about different ways to find auditions. And there's a there was a certain website. It's a it's a what we call in the VO industry a pay to play where basically you pay a subscription fee and you set up a profile and then clients will go to this company and say, hey, we need a voice for this. And then they'll post a breakdown and you can audition. And so I I, I 
signed up for this pay-to-play website. I was brand new, so I didn't have an agent or anything. And so I'm working on this pay-to-play. Well, I found a, a client through this website who is all over the Midwest. They are a massive client. And in my first year with them, they paid me five figures. Oh, wow. To do voiceover. That's amazing. They were a five-figure client, one client. And I went, hold on. If one client is a five-figure client, what happens if I have 100 clients? What happens if I have 500 clients? What happens if I even have two five-figure clients? All of a sudden, I'm a six-figure earner off two clients. Mm -hmm. And my mind just exploded. I, I Like everything changed. And I just said, okay, th- this is it. This is where we're going. Mm-hmm. And and I took off. I built a website. I, I, I got professionally made demos. And I just went full bore. But it was that first five-figure client when I had a, a really strange setup in my basement. I went – I found out that there was a, an office space going out of business. And I called them and said, can I come – take some of your stuff. And they said, yeah, come grab whatever you want. And I grabbed two dividing walls and put them in a V in my basement and then put up some foam padding behind it and a little $250 microphone. And that was my first booth. Mm -hmm. And that was how I made my first $15,000 was just off grabbing some stuff and throwing it together and doing it. You know, I didn't say, okay, well, let me plan out and map out. I need a thousand dollar microphone and I need a professional booth and I need a da da da, which, yeah, that's nice to have. But sometimes you just got a ready fire aim mm-hmm. and you just go and just start making mistakes. <laughs> ready fire aim. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. You just got to go yeah. make mistakes and, and learn from those mistakes. And I think this is my, the one, one of the bigger lessons I learned from all of this is failure is not a negative. Mm-hmm. All failure is, is a learning opportunity. I've, I've heard that many times throughout my life, you know, but my brain just hasn't been able to wrap around it until recently, though. I had a, a mentorship with uh, someone here in the building and uh, they showed me this like little assembly, like uh, something you would use in an assembly line type of factory, like you're making chairs. You know, you you get the you're you're in the phase of gathering materials, then you're in the 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 construction phase, and then you're in the these are ready to go phase, and this is out. And he said, and if something needs to go back, you just put it back in the queue. I never thought of hmm. anything like that until recently, and so when a failure came, it was devastating, like very devastating. And until I started to visualize that, oh, you just start it back over. Yeah. Things started working differently. Yeah. And recognizing that the person who is putting the most pressure on the situation is you. Right. When I, I made some unbelievable mistakes when I started out in voiceover, even as bad as, not recording our session with the client. Like we finish the session and they say, send me the files. And I go, imagine your anxiety. uh, I was dying. Like I'm thinking this is it. My career's over. And I read, and the client says, can you send me the files? And I say, Oh my word, I am so sorry. I didn't record the session. I totally forgot. And their response was, Oh yeah, uh, that's, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll schedule another session and we can't pay you for another session. I'm like, no, 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 of course not. Like, I made the mistake. I right. totally get it. Like, yeah, no, we'll just do another session. We'll record it again. No worries. 
Mm-hmm. Like, in my head, I'm thinking my career's over. Right. In my head, I'm thinking this is game over. This is it. Well, the reality is the client was just like, it happens. We get it. Right. And that could have easily shut someone down. Totally. And they wouldn't have called the client. They just would have ghosted. Oh, yeah. Oh, And then it oh, literally yeah. would have ended their career. Totally. But since you pushed forward and went, hey, I'm sorry, let's just... And, and they were like, yeah, let's do it again. That's an amazing experience. Open communication is your best friend. Mm-hmm. I have... I don't like absolutes, but I'm going to say I have never had so far an experience where when I was open with the client... An issue was not resolved. Every time you just you just tell it like it is. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't you don't hide it. You don't sneak it. You say, hi, so and so client. I'm so sorry. This happened and this happened. How can we fix it? Open communication fixes everything. And so once you make the when you know when you quote unquote fail, basically all that's happening is is a mistake was made a miscommunication happened something didn't work how you wanted so what do you do well you fix it you say yeah here's what happened here's what needs to change here's how i can improve and then you go forward and the reality is is nobody cares like right. you just move on right and once that mindset took place i mean i i exploded my voiceover career took off because i was making mistakes left and right but instead of shutting down and instead of going oh no i screwed up i went oh okay so what did i learn from that okay i learned this i learned this and i learned this great let's see if i can keep applying that and then it took off dude i think i could talk for hours with you (laughs) this has just been amazing um paul i mean what's what's next for you and where can people see your stuff yeah, so you can find my work at paulcartwrightvo.com, C-A-R-T-W-R-I-G-H-T. So paulcartwrightvo.com. I got portfolios up there with some of my VO work. I've got all my demos. Um, I'm building my on-camera site so that I have a separate link for all my on-camera stuff. Uh, but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Paul T. Cartwright. The same with Instagram, at Paul T. Cartwright, and you can find me on Facebook. Um, that's usually all I do on Facebook is just for work purposes. I mean, right. It's not really like a... Yeah, I spend a little too much time on there doing pointless things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's all business for me on Facebook. So if you're looking for juicy opinions, you're not going to find them. It's just, it's all about work. So, but that's where you can find my stuff. Okay. And um, you have some workshops, right, that, that people can... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So every month I do a beginning voiceover workshop for anyone who wants to participate. It's $75 and it's all remote. So you don't have to leave your home. You don't have to go anywhere. But basically I break down the entire voiceover industry for two hours. I let you know how to get started, what you need equipment wise. I, I basically say that once you finish the workshop, I'm now a resource. I give you my email. So if you have questions and I help get people started because it took me a good two and a half years of, you know, 11 p.m. when everyone went to bed to 4 a.m. just researching the industry to figure it out. And I don't want people to have to go through that. So mm-hmm. every right. month. Yep. You can. And I'll, and I'll post that on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn. So if you follow me on there, um, you'll get the info every month on when the next workshop is. All right, Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure just getting to know your story, learning so much about you, even things that are going to help me out. And for those of you that are listening, I sure hope this was helpful. I know it was for me. 
So thanks for coming on the show. Uh, This has been The Path of Art with Ryan Meeks. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to The Path of Art. If you or someone you know is creative and would like to tell your story, reach out to me at rmeeks at ksl.com. I might feature you on the show. If you liked our conversation, please make sure you follow the show and give us a five-star rating and review. It really does help people to discover the show. Also, make sure you follow The Path of Art podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.